you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This is Ron Silico, episode 21. Very happy and fortunate today to be talking to Nick Gillespie for part two of our interview. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. I know our first conversation, we ran out of time, but I felt like I could have talked to you about a lot of different things, and I'm, I appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with me again today. Before we get into a lot of what reasons involved with currently in terms of topics, and, and I, I know I'll paint a broad brush on some level with that, I want to talk to you because for those of you in the audience who haven't heard Nick's interviews, Nick, I've got to ask, how do you prepare for an interview? Because I've watched you. You're so well prepared. You have a variety of people that you interview. In some cases, because I've experienced this on some level with my podcast trying to get information from guests right. and get them engaged. What's your process? Well, uh, you know, I at Reason TV, I probably do somewhere between 50 and 100 interviews a year, and I've been doing that for a while, and I've been a journalist for uh, almost 25 years, I guess, all told, a professional journalist. So I've got a fair amount of practice, but, you know, it helps uh, if I'm interviewing the author of a book, and I'm always amazed when people say this, but, uh, you know, it's rare, like I read the book of the person that I'm interviewing, and uh, you'd be surprised at how many times people are like, oh, you know, that was so refreshing to be interviewed about my book by somebody who read it, uh, you know, so that, you know, if you, you know, I, I'm interested in certain topics and so I read up on it and it's always a pleasure or uh, a challenge to interview somebody about that. So, you know, preparation, it's mostly, um, you know, looking through the guy's work or the, the woman's work and figuring out, okay, what, what more do I want to know about this and where do I, where do I agree with them? Where do I disagree? Mm-hmm. And, I'm impressed with how well-read you are, right? How, if you could share with the audience, how many books do you read and articles do you read on a, on a, on a day, yeah. on a week? I have gotten in trouble. People who know me are, you know, they say one of my most annoying habits that I can say uh, on a family podcast is, uh, you know, is that I read a lot. I read too much. But I like reading. I mean, I went to, you know, I went to college. I was an English major. I went to grad school. I was an English major. I've been a journalist. And, you know, I, I, I'm probably always kind of reading a couple of books a week is skimming them. Um, and then, you know, if, if I find the topic interesting for work related things, I'm, you know, probably leafing through a half a dozen books at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for pleasure or for things that I'm really interested in certain topics, uh, you know, it, I, I'll, I'll do a deeper dive on stuff, but it's, you know, it's kind of, Constantly reading. I have an iPad with me. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, Apple products in general, uh, but, but I happen to have an iPad for work reasons. Uh, but I use the Kindle app on it all the time. And that uh, I found in a weird way, I, w- I went back to grad school. I had been working as a journalist in Manhattan. This was in the late 80s. I had worked for a bunch of movie magazines and music magazines and teen magazines. Uh, you know, this was the, the humble start for me. And um, I went back to grad school because I wanted to read, and I found myself when I was commuting, I was commuting from New Jersey and from New York and Manhattan and everything, but I would be reading novels all the time, and I would actually get to work. And I, the first thing I would do is, like, find – I would close the door to my office and finish reading, uh, you know, what, uh, the novel I was in. I was like, I should go back to school for this. And it was odd because this was in 1988, so it was a long time ago. The minute I got to grad school for literature – 
I was like, oh my God, I really don't have enough time to read anymore. I have so many other things to do. So, yeah. but in fact, I, you know, I'm, I'm constantly skimming through stuff and, um, you know, sometimes for pleasure, often for pleasure, uh, and, uh, but always for work and kind of where you're strip mining stuff for the things that you, you find interesting. Mm -hmm. And something I'm really impressed about because I'm, I'm doing it on a much smaller scale than you, your blog post. How long does it take you to create a blog post? Oh, it really, it varies. I mean, you know, this is at reason.com. We, uh, you know, and I, I have a, you know, I work with, I don't know, 20 or 30 people all told between the video production and, and journalism. And then there's some policy people that add on to this, but, you know, we're constantly doing stuff, but I, uh, you know, I, I'm posting anywhere from one to three pieces a day at uh, Reason, and I do weekly columns for other places. Um, you know, so uh, it, it varies. Some, literally, some blog posts take 15 minutes. Others will take, you know, a couple of days, all, all told from start to finish, or articles. Um, you know, and I, I can tell you there's also, uh, this is a curious facet, I guess, of writing in general, but of the web more more particularly, you, you know, you, you like to think uh, that there is a tight correlation between the amount of time you spend doing something and the quality mm -hmm. that comes out. And I think the correlation is a lot looser than we want to admit. But mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be uh, on, on a weekend, I happened to be looking at Google and the Google squiggle that they put up, you know, the little cartoon that they sometimes sure. emblazon the mm -hmm. uh, logo with was of Laura Ingalls Wilder, who's the, uh, the woman who wrote the uh, Little House books, sure. which are huge. Sure. And as it happens, um, you know, so it was her birthday. And as it happens, um, Laura Ingalls Wilder's daughter is a woman named Rose Wilder Lane, who in the 20s, 30s, 40s, up through really, I think she died in the late 80s or something mm -hmm. like that, or maybe in the 70s. But Rose Wilder Lane, her daughter, was the one who actually edited the Little House books, and she was a best-selling writer on her own. She was mm -hmm. a political theorist as well as a novelist and a, and a magazine writer. Um, she is, wrote one of the books, it's called The Machinery of Freedom, that is widely credited with kind of creating the, uh, the modern libertarian mm -hmm. moment or movement. Um, so I, you know, I saw Laura Ingalls Wilder, and we've written about this at, at Reason Magazine over the years, about Rose Wilder's Lane role in, in producing those books, as well as the kind of themes of, uh, of, you know, of how communities form and voluntary association, as well as kind of rugged individualism that go through all of the Little House books. It's, I mean, they're a very interesting set of books and wildly, wildly popular. But in any case, the point is I, I blogged something at Reason uh, that literally took 10 minutes where I just said, hey, Google is celebrating Laura Ingalls Wilder's birthday. Mm -hmm. You should, too, because she, you know, she and her books and, and her daughter's legacy are very important if you care about kind of limited government, libertarian thinking and cultural production. And, you know, that so it took 10 minutes and it just went bananas because it also ended up getting at the top of Google search for Laura's, Laura <laughs> Ingalls Wilder. So, you know, it just became this massive traffic, uh, you know, traffic pot for us. And it's, what's amazing is most people that go on to Google probably didn't even realize what that was. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, and I mean, Google is, you know, one of the things that I truly love about the web uh, is just that. Um, it allows for a kind of serendipity and in, in the form of, uh, you know, knowledge. I mean, I, you know, I said I read a lot and I suspect that a lot of people are like this where, you know, one of the, the great things about the web is that you start reading something and then you, you know, you catch somebody's name and you're like, oh, you know, who is that? Like, uh, you know, just yesterday, my 
younger son who's in eighth grade, uh, he came home and he was telling me about uh, in history or whatever they call it now, um, they were talking about the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition. And I said, hey, you know what happened to Meriwether Lewis? Because I had read this, you know, that he committed suicide or he might have been murdered. You know, there are, the historians differ on this. And we were talking and I had my laptop with me and I just started scrolling through, you know, Meriwether Lewis. And then I noticed, you know, uh, William Clark, his, you know, of Lewis and Clark had named his son after Meriwether Lewis and was related to George Rogers Clark. George mm -hmm. Rogers Clark was an older brother of Will Clark, who's very big in Ohio, mm -hmm. and what used to be the Western Reserve and sure. all of this. Sure. And the next thing I know, it was like an hour later, and we had been talking about George Rogers Clark and Tippecanoe and the Battle of uh, Fallen Timbers. And, you know, and it's just kind of great. I mean, it's so much easier to do that now because you can really just kind of, you know, trip down a trail of, you know, of, of links that, you know, didn't exist 25, 30 Absolutely. years ago. Yeah. So as we, as we had our, our last meeting off air, you said something that I thought was a very fascinating statement mm -hmm. because of the work you do. You made the same thing. You said, I hate politics. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. No. <laughs> Explain that to the audience and how you, I guess, reconcile yeah. that with yourself and what you're trying yeah. to do. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a political journalist, and uh, the people I work with, you know, at Reason Magazine, which has been around since 1968, uh, you know, covers politics, culture, and ideas from a small-l libertarian perspective. And I often joke that, you know, this is a political magazine written by and for people who hate politics. And I think what I mean by that is that in the broader kind of uh, libertarian world, the, the limited government mentality and our slogan is free minds and free markets. The idea is that you, you want to live in a world where you have maximum freedom to kind of figure out how you want to live your life. And that means really getting away from politics because there are, you know, there are certain things that have to be done collectively and there are certain things that any society and subunit of a society, you know, from the nation to the state to the locality to the county, whatever, you know, there's going to be things that we do collectively and that are better done collectively or should, like a framework should be mapped out. But the whole goal, I think, of libertarianism and certainly the way that we talk about it in, at Reason is that you want politics to be as small a part of your world as possible in the sense that you want to shrink down the amount of stuff where you need consensus because what happens is 51% of people or 50% plus one can tell the other 50% minus one vote, mm -hmm. how to live their lives or what are the rules. And, you know, sometimes that's unavoidable, but for the most part, you want to squeeze down those areas where it majority rules as much as possible, because that's, you know, we're not put on earth in order to, um, you know, to do the bidding of other people. And this isn't to say, you know, we're all selfish individualists or anything. It's just that, you know, I want to get on with building a business. I want to get on with building a community. I want to get on on building uh, my life with the people that I associate with. And you shouldn't need to go back to the main, you know, to the main board, to the town hall and say, hey, is it okay if I do this with my life or if I do that with my life or my business or my, or my family? Um, so, you know, that's why, you know, so we're, you know, the, the, the ultimate goal of libertarian politics is really to reduce the size, scope, and spending of government because the most interesting things that happen in life are not going to be happening or should not be ha have to happen in a state house somewhere or while you're waiting for people to vote on whether or not you're free or you're not free. Mm -hmm. To that point, why do you think so many people have the 
mentality of deferring that government knows best and government can solve so many of our issues? Well, I think, uh, you know, one thing that is good is that, that whatever that percentage is, it's smaller than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I think it's smaller than it was probably 50 or 70 years ago. Um, and, you know, a survey show this, I mean, uh, kind of a lack of confidence, a lack of trust in government. Uh, you know, when you look at places like Gallup and uh, the, Reason, uh, the Reason Foundation, the nonprofit that publishes Reason, has done these Reason Roop polls. You can find them at reason.com slash poll. You know, the kind of confidence and trust in government to do the right thing or to always do the right thing, to mostly do the right thing, are at recent recent historic lows, you know, over the past 30 or 40 years. And we're talking about, you know, there were after World War II, certainly there were a series of body blows to, uh, you know, trust and confidence in government, uh, you know, whether it was the Vietnam War, whether it was Watergate, whether it was things that came out about the way that the NSA and the CIA and the FBI in the 70s, the, the church commission hearings came out that said, look, you know, the government's been lying about all of this stuff it's been doing to people illegally. You know, that has only the Edward Snowden revelations of 2013 have pushed that forward. Plus the fact that just in recent memory, we were told, uh, you know, at the end of the Bush administration, uh, the Bush years, he was like, okay, we've got to save the economy. The economy is finished unless... Uh, we create the uh, Troubled Assets Relief Program, uh, whether we have to bail out the automakers, we have to do this. In 2008, before the financial crisis hit, Bush put in a $100 billion stimulus program in the form of just giving tax money or giving tax money back. But he cut checks from the government to people. Then Obama came in and expanded the TARP programs, expanded uh, you know, the auto bailouts that extended them did all sorts of other stuff, stimulus spending up to the tune of 700 uh, billion or 800 billion dollars, uh, you know, and, and it didn't work. I mean, by the, their own standards, these programs were failures. And I think people understand that, that, you know, the government, even when it's trying to do the right thing, oftentimes has no idea what the right thing is. So to get to your question, what I'm most optimistic about is the fact that fewer and fewer people, I think, really believe that the government has answers. And in a broad sense, we are less likely to defer to the um, to experts across all sorts of aspects mm -hmm. of our lives. And I think that that's great. I've written about that almost my entire career at Reason, and I think it stems from the fact that as as a whole, we are better educated, we are wealthier, um, and uh, technology has spread information around and so that people, you know, when you're, when you're wealthy and when you're somewhat better educated and technology allows you to get information, you're less likely to defer to other people that, you know, people don't go to the doctor the way that they used to mm -hmm. and just say, okay, doc, tell me what's wrong and what I need to do. They come in, you know, most people come in saying, I feel this way and I've read about this or, you know, what should I do about this? Or, you know, I mean, people don't defer, you know, people, you know, it, it it's, it's been a very difficult 25-year period for, you know, people in traditional forms of authority, whether we're talking about politicians or lawyers or bankers or stockbrokers or priests, you name it, because we are much more empowered and we feel more empowered to mm -hmm. Not necessarily, you know, not to say no authority should exist or nobody knows more than somebody else, but the terms of exchange in terms of power and authority has changed. And I think even common people like you and me in a society today, we're more likely to 
to go in and ask more questions and demand more answers um, than our parents or our grandparents were. Um, but to get to the larger point, I think people defer oftentimes for different reasons. They feel like, well, in this instance, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do about the economy. I don't know what to do about my savings. I don't know what to do about getting better health care. There's a lot of things. And, and you know, and people oftentimes, and we're, we're living through a prolonged, not, uh, you know, technically it's not an economic recession. It's certainly not a depression. But we're in an economic funk in a lot of ways that is, I mean, it's distinct from the one that uh, that hit the country in the 70s. But it's similar in the sense that, there's been a long period of time where you know wages haven't gone up, where things seem you know not quite right. Uh, you know people are working hard, but they're having trouble getting jobs or getting more money. Uh, you know, in many ways, things are going very well for us. I think in the longer term, but um, and I think you know in in ter- times of prolonged crisis, people sometimes are willing to defer. Um, or designate other people as uh, okay. You take charge because I don't. I have no idea what to do next. I know a level, something that's very frustrating to me. To that point is there's a lack of accountability by mm-hmm. people in power holding other people sure. in power accountable. Uh, a great tweet I I read last week was about Brian Williams, a journalist, and mm-hmm. said Brian Williams, comma the only person who's ever suffered professional consequences by <laughs> lying about the Iraq War. Yeah, and it's it's things like that where the corporate bailout and in mm-hmm. the bank scandal and not only did people escape punishment in a lot mm-hmm. of cases, they helped rewrite the policy. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's you know the classic case of that is that we were told that the uh, Dodd Frank financial regulation rules were designed to make sure we would never get into a financial crisis again where there would be some banks that were too big to fail and hence had to be bailed out otherwise the whole economy would go down the tubes and and it turns out that the top you know half dozen banks now actually have a greater market share in terms of capitalization and holdings mm-hmm. than the banks did before the financial crisis so that's exactly to your point where they're um, you know and and now what will you know the you know, who are the people, Eric Holder at one point, the attorney general, said essentially, you know, that there were certain banks not only too big to fail, but that their owners were too big to jail. So that even if there was evidence of wrongdoing, it just, it couldn't, it couldn't be done. That's, you know, that's, that's not good. Um, I do, one thing I would disagree with you slightly about is that there were, there have been political consequences for uh, political failures. And so you saw, you know, when the Iraq war, which, you know, is just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to fully take the measure of certain types of disasters because they really, you know, first off, they take place, much of the violence and mayhem takes place a million miles away, but it's also these things unfold over decades, not even over the, not even over the, you know, 12 or 15 years or, you know, whatever we've been overseas. Uh, in various places. But, you know, Bush and the Republicans lost in 2006, primarily, you know, or in large part because of their stupid foreign policy. Uh, You know, the Democrats won control of Congress and then they won control of the presidency, partly because of Republican stupidity on foreign policy. So there's some payback there. Mm -hmm. Very, you know, it does nothing to find the wounds of the Americans who suffered, you know, for this stupid policy, much less the Iraqis, and now the entire region, which is more destabilized than it was in 2003, certainly when we went in. But then Obama himself pursued an equally and possibly even dumber foreign policy, and he has paid, or the Democrats have paid some 
uh, political price for that. You know, they lost control of Congress, uh, et cetera. So there is some payback, but this is, you know, history, uh, certainly politics and current events. It's very, very unfair. And uh, it's exceptionally rare when the guilty get punished uh, or even acknowledge what they have done. And I think it's better, you know, this is a place where, um, you know, it's better to just kind of be as magnanimous as possible when when the right thing happens and just accept it and don't expect, you know, a full accounting of anything. Somebody like Donald Rumsfeld is, you know, is just an awful, awful human being. And it's clear that whatever, you know, whether he was like this when he was in power or now afterwards, he's wrapped himself in a kind of psychological cocoon where everything that happens in the world vindicates him in his own mind. You will never get him to admit the way that Robert McNamara, the defense secretary, mm-hmm. largely responsible for the Vietnam War uh, and its failure, you know, did come to a, a kind of a come to Jesus moment where mm-hmm. he recognized that he, right. he had been wrong and much of his life's work, uh, you know, was just wrong. I don't think that'll happen with a lot of other people. And, and actually, you know, while we're thinking about this, it's true with the drug war. You know, one of the most popular or one of the most positive things I think that is going on is that we're, you know, we're at the beginning moments of the end of the war on drugs, which has been, you know, waged by the federal governments and state governments in one form or another going back to the 19 teens, really. Uh, It's always been a disaster. It has always been racially motivated. It has always just, you know, it has exacerbated every social ill that it claims to ameliorate. And then the failure of, of its success is the grounds for the next, oh, well, now we really have to double down and triple down. That's starting to end when you see, you know, states like, uh, you know, Washington and especially Colorado and a couple of other states just recently have okayed pot legalization. California, it's going to be on the ballot in California in 2016 and will likely win. But it's, the drug war is ending. We will never have, there will never be a Nuremberg trial for the drug war, you know, for the, the architects and the you know, the, uh, you know, the people who prosecuted the drug war and just, you know, sentenced millions upon millions of people and entire cities and entire areas to, you know, a, uh, just a horrible, um, you know, horrible, horrible, de- depraved and deprived life through prohibition, through failed prohibition, through uh, extra constri- constitutional abridgments of rights, all sorts of things like that destroyed families, destroyed foreign policy, destroyed and wasted educational time on, on just useless programs. There will never be a Nuremberg trial for the, the drug war. And if that is a price that we have to pay for ending the drug war, we, we should you know we should just be happy when the policy changes. Right. So I want to go down through a list of some of the sure. issues. That reason speaks speaks about it in some significant detail. Entitlements in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like we're going, we're heading to a cliff. We are, people, and people keep kicking the can down. Yeah, the yeah, this is uh, absolutely, you know, an entitlement spending. I, I always feel a need to kind of rehearse a definition of entitlements because sure. I always, I, you know, I'm not sure that I fully understand it, but you know, the idea of an entitlement program is that it's an open-ended obligation on the part of the government to pay out to anybody who qualifies for it, regardless of budget concerns. Um, And so that, you know, the main entitlements in our country today, the ones that are really uh, putting budget and spending at the federal level, uh, you know, in big trouble are Medicare, uh, which is health, you know, pays for health insurance for people 65 and older, and Social Security. 
Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, Medicaid is also like that, which provides health care for poor people. But at least that is, you know, that that is, you know, it's, it's a terrible program. Objectively, it is a terrible program. And there are many studies that suggest that it actually it is worse for you to be on Medicaid insurance than not to have insurance at all, because the way that you respond to health problems, you're more likely to even if you're poor, you're more likely to get med medical care if you're not on Medicaid, so, you know, there's a shortage, chronic shortage of doctors and they pass you around and things like that. But hmm. Medicare and Social Security are the major drivers of, and particularly Medicare, of, you know, massive explosions of spending. We have gone that the federal budget is split between two large spending categories. One is called mandatory spending, which covers entitlements and a couple of other things, and then discretionary spending, which things like farm, you know, farm subsidies, which are stupid, of course, food stamps also uh, negative, you know, ultimately have a negative impact on the people they're supposed to help, uh, as well as education, a few other things. Um, discretionary spend, it used to be that the mandatory and discretionary spending each took up about 48, 49% of the budget, and then there was some other things like interest on the debt. Over the past, just over the past few years, uh, mandatory spending is now like 50% or 60% of the federal budget, and it will keep growing, and it squeezes out discretionary spending. Um, and it's stupid. We now have old age entitlements that go primarily, you know, they come from taxes, payroll taxes that are levied on relatively young, relatively poor people, and they go to benefit relatively old, relatively wealthy people. People uh, 65 and older are among the very wealthiest in general in America. Um, and, uh, you know, they should not be getting free piles of money for passing age 65. I don't think so. Uh, Social Security was sold. It was created in the 1930s by uh, Franklin Roosevelt during the Depression as a kind of guaranteed pension plan for old people so that they would not be in poverty. Um, it was created as a kind of fake uh, retirement plan. It, it has no connection to, you know, to retirement. It has no connection. And now it shifts. If, if you've retired after 2010, uh, every, every analyst who's looked at it, if you look at the way that they pay out, if you retired after 2010, you will get less money out of Social Security than you and your employer put into it, assuming a 2% annual inflation rate and a 2% annual return. It's a, I mean, we're wasting, you know, it, it, it soaks up 12.4% uh, of all of every dollar of earned income we make up until about $115,000, $117,000, which is, you know, more than most people in America will ever make. Mm -hmm. But it takes 12.4% of those wages and dumps it into a program that, if it still exists when we retire, will be paying you a negative return. You know, so the, the, this is just bad. And you're right, people are kicking the can down the road. Uh, currently, Social Security, part of what it has, it also pays disability. Disability claims have gone up, partly because we're older and older people tend to have more, and also because the requirements were changed basically under Ronald Reagan to make it easier to qualify for full disability. That trust fund is going to be bankrupt in 2016. Lawmakers are not saying, okay, we need to reform how we fund this stuff and what our priorities are and how we fund other things. And they're just saying, okay, we're going to take some money from the other Social Security account, which won't go broke until 2030, to cover up here. So thereby, 
you know, stalling when the disability fund will be reformed so that it's financially sustainable, and they're quickening the demise of the main Social Security retirement fund. That type of thinking is shot through entitlements, um, which again are taking money from relatively poor, relatively young people and giving it to relatively wealthy, relatively old people. So it's a real disaster. To the point about retirement systems, I know there, there's always articles on reason about the pension systems mm -hmm. and, and local and state yep. governments. It, I think people get the concept that, that it's a system that's not sustainable. How, how do, can you explain for the audience how the money flow works to where it's caught? What, why, why is it going to bankrupt? Oh, yeah, yeah, well, this is for public sector employees. Mm -hmm. Uh, traditionally, uh, whether it's at the state level or the local level, and depending on the state you live in, sometimes it's all done at the state level, other times it's in local, uh, more local government. But you have, you know, a city says, uh, you know, or a state says, uh, you know, if you work for us, we, we can get an opt-out of Social Security, and the reason we're going to do that is we'll pay you a better retirement package than you would get under Social Security. And in a state like Ohio, and I, I'm not familiar exactly with the, the actual numbers, but basically what happens until very recently, every state would say, okay, if you work for us, we're going to, we're going to match, you know, we're, you, you put in say 5% of your uh, money, we're going to match that for 10% or you put in 10%, we'll match 15%. So you've got a good chunk of money that's going to a retirement fund. Now what happened, and, and then the state, if it's a defined contribution, uh, defined benefit plan, they're saying, and we will guarantee you that when you hit 55 or you hit 60 or you hit 65, we will pay you a percentage of your salary, of your final salary or your highest salary, your highest three-year salary. You know, it might be 80%, it might be 75%, and then you can top that off by also cashing out uh, un, unused vacation days. Or if you do this or that, you get extra bonus points for you know, and, and, and there are cases in places like California where, and Arizona, elsewhere where state employees have managed to retire on, on a pension that is actually more than they earned in any given year uh, because of this various sweeteners that happen at the end. Now, what has happened is that states have not actually been putting the money in that they are legally obligated to. So, you know, the state of Ohio or the state of California or New Jersey or wherever, they'll say, okay, yeah, we're going to match your money 15%, but they don't actually put that in. They're still, they still owe you that match. But they're like, oh, you know what, we have more pressing issues, so we're going to spend it on this or we're going to spend it on that. And we'll make it up by just saying that our, the stocks that we invest in will return 10% a year or 11% a year rather than, you know, a more realistic return of 7 or 8%. Mm -hmm. And the, so that gap grows and grows and grows. And as more people retire and also as um, lawsuits come forward where, you know, people are starting to get nervous about this and the state has to pony up the dough in order to refund or fully fund the retirement plans, it causes a real squeeze. And you see in places in uh, California and whatnot, you know, where um, retirement uh, pension pension uh, obligations might have been ten percent of a city or you know a, of a local uh, 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 budget are now creeping up into fifteen or twenty or more percent, and that's money that you know has to come from taxpayers. Uh, so then you raise taxes or you cut spending on things that for you know people who live in your community you cut police, you cut parks, you cut schools, you cut this, you cut that in order to pay people who are retired, and it, it causes a real problem. The more the, the, the more that a, a city or a state or a county 
borrows in order to make those payments or to make up other things. And the more unfunded liabilities they have, they get shakier credit ratings. And then it costs them more to borrow money, which they need to borrow more money in order to keep up with payments. And it just becomes a real problem. And you can see in, in cities like Detroit and a, and a number of other cities and states like uh, Rhode Island, actually, where this was one of the reasons why they basically crashed. And the optimistic thing in Reason Foundation, the nonprofit that publishes Reason, has a think tank. Um, and at Reason.org, they do a lot of work on how do you get out of this jam? Um, because it's like for most places, they have massively underfunded. The state of Illinois is screwed. There's no way they will be able to match this. And, you know, they, they talk about how do you transition out of a defined benefit program uh, to a defined contribution, which is more like a 401k or a 403b if you're a non, uh, uh, nonprofit uh, person. And where this, where the uh, the government unit just pays in at every paycheck interval, you know, a certain match if if they have one, and then it's up to the employee to kind of control, uh, you know, where that gets invested and to to monitor it. And you know, and that goes back to an earlier thing we were talking about about people stopping to defer to authority. You know, more and more people are saying, look, I don't trust the government that says, you know, in thirty years that they're they'll give me this. Give me my money now, even if it's a smaller amount, so that I control it. Because I know, in the end, I'm the one who's going to be either eating steak or, or dog food, mm -hmm. and so I, I want to have more control over my future. And they've lost faith in the political process, uh, and for good reason, because we know at various places, politicians make a lot of promises they will never deliver. Mm -hmm. Eminent domain. Yeah, eminent domain is something that is in the Constitution, and it's in every state constitution as well, and it. It speaks to the idea that there are certain times when, uh, for public use, the government has the right to take over private property. This should be used extremely uh, sparingly. Um, and what we've seen basically since the uh, you know, right after World War II with um, the early acts that created urban development and, and whatnot, or urban renewal, under first under Harry Truman, there's been a huge um, amount of uh, what is uh, typically called eminent domain abuse, where rather than seizing property that is needed for a, a very important highway or you know, a school or a hospital that is owned by a you know, public entity, uh, you see increasingly, and this goes back in the mid-2000s, there was a famous case, uh, the Kelo case that was heard by, in front of the Supreme Court, where in New London, Connecticut, the city said, we want to condemn a bunch of buildings that people are living in that are fine, that are totally habitable, because we want to take that property and immediately turn it over to a public-private partnership that's going to develop a hotel and resort complex for a local firm, that a pharmaceutical company that threw a lot of weight around. And um, that's a, a blatant abuse of eminent domain powers, because it was not, uh, but the Supreme Court of the United States said, okay, you know what, yeah, that's okay, because the goal was to increase the tax base, ultimately, or that's what they said. To, uh, to for the town to increase its tax base, and that's a public use. Um, it you know it's a terrible decision, and uh, ironically, it had the um, interesting kind of counter reactionary movement of it. It uh, focused a lot of anger at eminent domain abuse, and at the state and local level, a lot of people pushed back, and there were laws trying to rein in eminent domain abuse. Uh, so in a way, losing that fight was a good thing. But it's a continuing problem, and it stems really kind of from a total perversion of the idea of limited government, you know, where the government should only be allowed, and, you know, the, the Constitution spells this out pretty clearly under very narrow circumstances, 
And then over the years, people have been, eh, no, you know what, let's expand that because government knows better and government knows right. And it rarely does. I mean, uh, in the particular case, Kilo versus New London, what's interesting is that the uh, the area that was you know, taken over by the government, it gets condemned and then it gets taken over by eminent domain. The you know the the thing that they were going to build this resort area, uh, you know, for visiting dignitaries of a private business, it it never came to be because most of the time, if you need to use eminent domain in order to get a privately funded development project off the ground, it's clear that the market is telling you that it's not, you know, the property is not worth what it would take for you to go and buy it on the on the open market. And I won't post that video in the show notes because I've seen what yeah. it looks like today from from. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, Ohio was a really interesting battle for a couple of eminent domain abuse cases, including one outside of Cincinnati. Uh, this was also in the mid two thousands, and these. Uh, great uh, libertarian public interest lawyers at the Institute for Justice, IJ.org, have really been at the forefront of fighting eminent domain abuse. But in Kenwood, I guess it was, uh, you know, there were, uh, the city was going to, uh, con- you know, condemn as blighted a bunch of buildings that people were living in to create the, uh, and then turn the property over to a mall developer that was going to bring in um, Nordstrom's and a couple of other things. And it ended up fizzling out partly because of the legal challenges that were uh, that were raised by IJ and other groups. And, you know, and that that's, that's a good thing. And connected to that, you talk a lot about civil forfeiture right. and, and the incidents that are on the rise. With yeah. That. And this is another thing where uh, police, uh, you know, particularly, uh, you know, this is an old medieval, uh, I mean, literally medieval legal doctrine that, you know, goods and uh, things can be found guilty of criminal behavior. And so that money uh, and and the way that civil asset forfeiture works in in a lot of parts of of the country is that police can seize property of yours, typically money, or it could be guns, or it could be cars, it could be any number of things, and say, look, we believe this is from a drug trafficking uh, situation or something like that. And independent of whether or not you were ever charged or found criminally guilty of, of doing drug stuff, that civil asset forfeiture, you have to go through a separate uh, process in order to get your property back, which is very hard. And a lot of... Uh, a lot, a lot of municipalities, actually, they build in an expectation of cops seizing a certain amount of property, which they then can resell into their budgets, which gives this perverse incentive of where cops have every reason to start seizing all sorts of stuff, um, whether or not it actually is, you know, is, is implicated in any kind of criminal wrongdoing. And this is something we're, we're you know, another thing to be uh, kind of optimistic about is that America somewhere, I mean, and it's, it, you know, it's tragic when you think about the United States as a kind of shining city on, on a hill, you know, this vision of a, of a land of freedom and brave people and, you know, limited government. Somewhere in the course of the 20th century, we became the biggest jailer nation on the planet. I mean, and we, we now house more, we put more people in prison than the Soviet Union used to, than apartheid South Africa. I mean, it's like, it's insanity. Um, but there's a reaction to that, and there's a lot of interest in criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans 
um, are pushing for sentencing reform. The drug war is in the early stages of falling apart. And we're, you know, and part of this is out of necessity. Places like California have been under longstanding court orders to empty their jails because they are overcrowded. Uh, Rick Perry last year, uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference or committee, is having its annual conference in, in Washington, D.C. as we speak. Last year, Rick Perry wowed people there by saying, you know, we closed a prison in Texas, which is the prison capital of the of, of the U.S. and hence the globe. And, you know, even hardcore law and order conservatives are especially them are saying this is madness. We're wasting a ton of money and locking up a lot of people and destroying lives for unclear reasons. And so, you know, the pushback on asset forfeiture where you just start realizing people, you know, have people who have no real connection to any kind of criminal wrongdoing, have their houses, have their money, have their cars, have all sorts of stuff taken from them and can never really get it back. And people are finally pushing back and saying this is just messed up. Mm -hmm. Regulations. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, we, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're talking a couple, you know, a day or so after the net neutrality uh, regulations were passed or reclassification by the uh, Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. You know, it's, that's probably the newest, biggest set of regulations that have just been thrown down. It'll take years, literally years for them to ever be implemented fully. And you've but, really been focusing on this. Yeah, thing. yeah, because it's a big deal. It's right. an attempt to reclassify the internet from uh, in what's called an information service to a telecommunication service, and it gives the government broad powers to regulate and monkey around with the way people are able to access their internet uh, service. And it's, it's a great example of where the government feels a very strong need to get into something that is by every indication working extremely well absent the government's presence, you know, so it's, it's, it's troubling. But regulations in general, I mean, one of the things to think about in general, I would say reason uh, and libertarians are anti-regulation when they are imposed in a top-down way um, and absent any kind of clear harm to either the participants in a particular market or other people who are not in that market, but there's an externality, something happens and they get screwed over. And one of the reasons for that is that, and this is something that I think a lot of people who are kind of in the progressive community don't understand, is that every community and every market, every voluntary exchange, regulations get built up over time in order to kind of facilitate good things happening. Uh, and and to keep in check the power of the the people in that market, uh, you know, an example of that uh, might be you take something like Whole Foods Market, okay? Uh, Whole Foods Market, uh, which was founded by John Mackey, lives in Texas. Uh, Austin, Texas, is where the mothership of Whole Foods was created. He's a hardcore libertarian. He. You know, the idea is, well, we need the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, to grade meat and to inspect chickens and to tell us that our food is safe. A guy like Mackey shows that you don't need that because he's generated because of his ideas and his business sense and vision. He goes through a process where they certify all of their food, uh, you know, as organic, or they only deal with people who can certify that. They do something that is, it's not fair trade, but it's like that. They want to trade with merchants who treat their suppliers well and help develop, you know, poor economies and things like that. You would never, there, if, if, if Whole Foods had to abide simply by the USDA regulations, they would, you know, their food would be much less safe and it would be much less transparent where it's coming from. And that happens again and again and again in market situations. And oftentimes, ironically, the regulations that get put into place 
start monkeying around with the ability of the actual participants in a market to kind of come up with new ways of figuring what's a way to improve safety, what's a way to do things at lower cost. Because regulations, especially ones that just kind of get thrown on top of something, tend to raise costs without really increasing benefits. So we tend to be anti-regulation. I know one of my favorite Ron Paul quotes is, it takes it often takes two additional regulations to be written to take care of one oh, yeah, yeah. that's written. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can see, you know, the, the, there are a lot of examples of, of where deregulation, and we're, we're actually, in, in a certain level, you know, we talked about Dodd-Frank, uh, the banking regulations just a little while ago. That's a huge thing that will, again, take years to unfold exactly what they mean and to have all the rules written that come out of the regulatory document, which is hundreds of pages long. Obamacare is like that, too. You know, these things take forever to, to get out. Um, but, you know, in the 70s, and this is, you know, it's not a Republican-Democratic issue. Nowadays, you know, Republicans say they're anti-regulation and Democrats are pro-regulation. But, you know, that is most of that is the, uh, the uh, theater mm-hmm. or theatrics. But in the 70s, actually, uh, airline airline price controls were deregulated. And what happened, and this was something that took, it was people like Ted Kennedy and Ralph Nader and Jimmy Carter and Alfred Kahn, a, an economist who worked for the government who was a Democrat by affiliation. But they were, you know, at that point in time, the federal government in the name of national security and industrial policy said, okay, we're going to dictate what airlines can fly from what point to what point over what route, uh, how much they can charge, how often they can fly, literally down to what food was served on particular flights. I mean, this is, you know, nuts kind of regulation. These guys said, you know what, if we actually allow market forces to compete for customers and market share, we'll see, uh, uh, you know, prices, competition will flourish, it'll drive prices down, safety will go up, because if you have one air, you know, one or two air crashes, and you're done as an airline, etc. And all of that happened, and, and the deregulation of airline pricing, airline ticket pricing, and, and routes and whatnot, that ushered in an era where, you know, Flying an airplane was something only businessmen and rich people did to, you know, people, and you still hear people complaining about this, how flying is like being on the bus now, as if that's a bad thing. Because what that means is that flying has gotten so cheap that everybody can do it, which is a great outcome. And that's, you know, I would argue most of the time when you deregulate industries, that's what you get. You get cheaper prices and more competition and better services. Uh, and now what's interesting is that a lot of the times things that are called deregulation are actually re-regulation by, a, by another name. And so you see that with Dodd-Frank where they're going to, you know, by that they're not even deregulating. They're just regulating stuff. But in the electricity market in California, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, they supposedly deregulated the electricity market, and then, you know, then they had a series of brownouts and whatnot, and it turned out if you go through that, this is a deregulation bill that created a state, it created a state-run marketplace for selling electricity under very constrained circumstances, and it was, it passed unanimously in the state legislature, which is a sign that every special interest, including the power companies who are terrible in general, all of the environmentalists and everybody in between, they got whatever sweetheart deal they wanted out of it. So you had this, you know, much ballyhoo deregulation that had thousands of rules and constraints on a market and crashed the market because it wasn't deregulation, it was re-regulation. 
talking specifically about net neutrality, mm-hmm. I understand the sides of the issue. Mm-hmm. The terminology, is, to me, is confusing. Sure. If you're against the government being involved in, in the Internet, are you against net, net neutrality or yeah. for it? Well, <laughs> you know, these are two separate issues. And, it's you know, this is you have to hand it to the people who frame this issue because they came up with a great phrase, like who doesn't want a neutral net, which just means you kind of want a level playing field. We all like that. Um, but I think you can be for a free and open Internet. And actually, I, let me let me put this more bluntly. If you are actually in favor of a free and open Internet, you should probably be against most net neutrality rules. Because under the name of net neutrality, what they're saying is that the government should have more ability to oversee your local ISP's business model. Um, and it is not that your local ISP is a great guy or a good guy. You know, this goes back to Adam Smith. Businessmen, you know, you know they, you know, the candle maker and the butcher and the baker, they give you stuff not out of altruism but out of their own self-interest. And mm-hmm. part of their self-interest is to make sure, sure. that you know the neck, you know, when you buy a pie, you think, oh, that last pie I got here was great and it was at a good price. I want another one. Not uh, that pie tasted horrible or it killed me. Right. You know, I'm not coming back. Um, and so net neutrality rules as promulgated by the government and, you know, in the FCC ruling, which would reclassify uh, the, uh, the uh, Internet as an information service into being a telecommunication service, that gives the government more right to come in and say, no, you can't do it that way. You have to do it this way. Now, they say, you know, they, we have, we've just given ourselves these vast powers to regulate every aspect of the Internet like we can do with telephone companies, and these regulations go back to 1935 or so. But we're not going to do that because we're going to use a light touch. That's the phrase they keep repeating, and we're going to do a lot of forbearance, which is a process by which the government says, well, you know what? We could completely regulate every aspect of your business, but we're not going to. Because, you know, make a, make a case to us that we shouldn't have to. And this is, I mean, it, 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 it starts looking perilously close like extortion of, you know, a mafia guy saying, you know, I could just take over everything. <laughs> but I'm not going to if you pay me the right, right tribute. Right. And that can be tribute both rhetorically as well as monetarily. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that up because <laughs> I can. I can yeah. And if I can also point out, you know, part of the net neutrality stuff is that people say, and there's some truth to this, of saying like, okay, well, you know what, for for a market to work, you need a couple of things. Like you, you need a couple of firms that are trying to get your business, and most ISPs have a monopoly uh, on a local area. That is actually, according to the FCC's own data, that is not true. Eighty percent of Americans, eighty uh, percent of American households are in areas where they have between two or more high-speed Internet providers. So there is a market already. And it's also true that even if uh, we live in an area that is mostly covered by Time Warner, um, and, uh, you know, even if Time Warner has a monopoly, they know that people have the option of just saying, oh, screw it, this, you're ripping me off too much or you're not giving me what I want. So they have to, you know, what has happened? I've been living in Oxford on and off since 1998, I guess, and I, was, I got Time Warner's Roadrunner service the minute it was available here. What has happened over time is that their prices by most accounting measures have gone down over, you know, when you adjust for inflation and service. They add channels. They add speed. They do all sorts of stuff to try and keep us happy because they know even if they have almost a, a monopoly and they don't here because there are mobile providers and there's Frontier and a couple of other right. services, right. you know, that they got to keep people happy. So, Zoning. 
Yeah, zoning is a great uh, example. Uh, you know, it's a form of regulation, of land use regulation, and this is in the uh, Reason Saves Cleveland with Drew Carey mm -hmm. series we did a few years back, which is up at reason.com. Um, one of the great things, the guys who uh, uh, put that together that I worked with, uh, one of the most fascinating things I came up with was that um, Cleveland, uh, you know, Cleveland is a dead city, essentially. It's it's kind of like clogged with the detritus of the past. It, it literally can't get rid of like old ruins that are there. It can't move into the future. One of the great examples of that is their zoning codes. Basically, since the turn of the century, uh, 20th century, uh, beginning of the 1900s, zoning became very popular uh, by planners because you know if you if you don't plan for growth, it's messy and it's sloppy, and you're going to have you know the famous example is you're going to have rendering plants like fat you know guys that that render fat out of dead animals will set up shop in a, in a suburban neighborhood or a residential area. And that never happens for all sorts of reasons, none of which have to do with zoning. It just doesn't make economic sense for various reasons. But Cleveland had, we, we, in that series, we compared Cleveland to Houston a lot because, um, you know, they both at, at a certain point in time, they had about the same number of people and Cleveland, uh, Houston is now as big relative to other cities as Cleveland was at its peak 50 years ago. But Houston has no zoning rules. Uh, they have a couple of things that limit land use, but they don't have zoning. And uh, Cleveland has something like, you know, two dozen or, and they just kept adding zoning things. And what happens with zoning is that it means every time you want to put in a new business or you want to change a business, you have to go to a zoning board and you have to plead your case. You have to get a variance or you have to get clearance or you have to, you know, have them change things. And this goes to that question of asking permission. Uh, it is a great way forcing people to ask permission before they do anything is a great way to kill a society. It's a great way to kill innovation. It's a great way to kill wealth. And it's not just big cities. It's Oxford. Oh, absolutely. No, uh, in many cases, uh, you know, places like Oxford are even worse, uh, you know, because you have – it's easy for a small number of people to gain maximum amount of control. And you see that, uh, you know, one of my uh, favorite examples of, uh, you know, how zoning works in unintended ways because everybody – you know, the planning mentality – is the idea, well, we'll pass a rule and that'll fix it, you know, and it's like it never really works out that way. But one of the things in Oxford, uh, you know, which is a college town and it has a historic uptown area, you know, the square mile, where clearly college students are always going to pay a premium to live near the shopping area, near the campus, near the bar. So, you know, they're, they're willing to do that because they're not going to be here for a long time and it's, it means more to them. But the town elders and the university administrators always, for some reason, they want families and professors to live in the mile square because that's the way that it was, you know, 100 years ago or something. And so among the various other things they do besides giving people uh, who work at the university, I think they may have stopped this now, but for a while they were giving them extra money to right. live in Oxford or live here. And it's kind of like, you know that that seems like a waste of money but uh and, and it doesn't really work but one of the things that they've done here is that they zone out or they they try in order to keep students out of from you know cramming into houses in the mile square area they say okay only x number of unrelated adults can live in the same house and they do that to make sure that students you know don't all live in the mile square et cetera and what that ends up doing among other things is it means that students need more houses 
to live in because they can't as not as many can cram in and they start spreading out to you know can you know adjoining neighborhoods and whatnot and then you have this problem that the city is like oh you know what this is a problem students are starting to rent everywhere in the subdivision i live in just passed a rule you know they went and petitioned to the zoning of the planning commission to say oh to preserve the historic character <laughs> of this subdivision which dates back to i think like the early 70s we need to pass a law that is effectively a discrimination against students. We don't want as many, you know, we don't want students moving here. And it's like, well, one of the reasons they're in our neighborhood now is because they can't be in the mile square because of earlier zoning. And you just see this kind of, you know, you, you, you pass a law to fix a problem that causes more problems. And the answer is to pass more laws, you know, going back to what you were saying about Ron Paul, you know, it's like regulation begets more regulation, failure begets more failure. Right. Right. Tax code? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we, uh, we're in an interesting era now where the tax code, and, you know, just to break it down to or, or, or narrow it to the federal income tax code, the last time there has been a major systemic overhaul of the tax code was in the late 80s, uh, you know, and this was brokered, uh, again, bipartisan. And these, these things always are, the big stuff always, almost, uh, Obamacare is strange in, the, in that, that it was passed without a Republican vote, typically large um, transformational legislation uh, is passed by bipartisan people, including things like the Civil Rights Acts in the 60s. You know, Republicans actually voted. They were the deciders in that because uh, a lot of Southern Democrats were against it. Things like Social Security, et cetera, you know, the stuff, Medicare. And it's not always good. Bipartisanship is uh, wildly overrated. But um, the tax code hasn't been reformed since the late 80s. And everybody is starting to recognize that it it is failing at, you know, it's the first purpose of the tax code of taxes is to raise the revenue necessary for the, the amount of government that people say they want. We haven't been close to that since, you know, 2000, basically. 2001 was the last year we had a budget surplus at all, like on an annual, like crude accounting level. Um, and before that, it had been years. You know, we had a couple of years of surpluses. That, those are gone. And even Obama, you know, doesn't pretend looking forward 10 years that we're ever going to get close to anything like that again. So the tax code is failing. Uh, by only accounting for, you know, I think I, I tallied this up between 2009 and I think 2013 or something. We only, the taxes only paid for about uh, two-thirds of government spending. The rest was actually borrowed. So that's a problem. But the other thing is, is that the tax code is routinely, and this is true at, at state and local levels as well as at the federal level, it's used as a form of social engineering. And this is something from a libertarian perspective I find offensive and stupid. But we do a lot of stuff where we'll say, okay, we're going to tax all income. You know, if you make this amount of money, we're going to tax you at 20% unless you buy a house, uh, you know, because we want you to buy a house because – will say it makes you a better citizen, even though there's no actual evidence to suggest that. But it might be because the housing industry is really politically connected. And they say, you know, you should do things to get people to buy houses. That's the American dream, buy a house. You know, and so we'll say, we're going to tax you at this rate unless you do this. Or, um, you know, have a couple of kids. If you have more kids, as long as you're not on welfare, you know, we'll give you more money every kid that you bring into the world, even though that means – you're going to be sending more kids to school. That'll cost more money on this side. But, hey, you know what, maybe we'll say it's good to have kids because then they'll pay for entitlements that are going broke or whatever. But this this idea of, of social engineering or if you buy an approved appliance that we think will reduce carbon emissions, you'll get some extra money and this and that. And 
to me, that's part we're, – we're at a point now, as we are with a lot of things, I think we're at the end of what I, I call the long 20th century where, you know, the you know – a lot of stuff that we've taken for granted growing up, you know, if you were born, if you lived a chunk of your life in the 20th century, you know, that government is good, that planning is good, all of this. Like, we're kind of getting to the end of that, that the drug war makes sense, that gay people shouldn't have equal rights, that immigrants are bad. All of this stuff, you know, is kind of coming to an end in the tax code. I, I you know, we everybody recognizes we need to start over. Like, you can't, you can't reform this. This is a house that where we've been adding on so many rooms that the entire structure is unstable and it's a teardown. Um, and hopefully, if we go through that process, we will start with a couple of fundamental insights. And one is that taxes are supposed to raise the revenue for the amount of government we say we want. You know, for starting off, uh, taxes should be fair, uh, or rather, they should be visible uh, and they should be widely, under widely understood that taxes should not reward or incentivize certain behavior over other behavior as long as it's legal mm-hmm. um, you know that it's better uh, that when taxes are are levied once on the same dollar we have a tax system now where you can pay again and again on the same dollar of income you know depending on how you spend it and where you spend it etc and that distorts economic decision making because you know you want taxes are, are necessary to pay for certain things but you don't want taxes to distort the decisions people make so that for instance you might get a ridiculously overbuilt housing market that is propped up for vari- through various policies and then collapses. It would be much better just not to it, not to distort markets through the tax code. Ballot access and candidate access. Yeah. Uh, well, this is, uh, you know, we talk about this usually in, uh, in and around uh, presidential years, but uh, ballot access laws are written by definition by the parties that hold power and uh, consistently, what we've seen in, in America at every level is that um, Democrats and Republicans may hate each other, but they love each other more than they hate, or rather, you know, they hate each other, but they hate third or minor parties even more. So they're constantly coming up with ways to disenfranchise new political parties from uh, gaining ballot access um, and, and competing with them for various things. Gary Johnson, the Libertarian Party candidate uh, for president in the 2012 election, got a million votes, about 1%. Had a good chunk. He's very eloquent on this. I mean, the amount of work that it takes the Libertarian Party just to get on the ballot in 45, much less 50 states, soaks up so much of their energy that it, it leaves the candidates less time to actually campaign. As it happens, uh, you know, American political history, uh, and partly because of the way the Constitution is written, we're always going to have two major parties. There are times where, you know, we've always had more than two two parties, but there's always two parties that are kind of dominant for, for a variety of reasons. What those parties are and what they stand for changes regularly, but it would be great. We don't have a parliamentary system where, you know, the smaller, excuse me, smaller parties can kind of create coalitions and it, and it, it, we, you know, there are more types of parties that, that get real representation in, in their legislatures, but it would be great to make ballot access easier and hence candidate access easier. And tied to that voter access. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that we talk, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, 
uh, say, uh, you know, voting, you know, that the fact that we can vote is one of the great things about America. And then they bemoan the fact that very few people vote. And it's kind of like, you know, it, almost with almost without exception, there are some exceptions. But, you know, when you see countries that have a 90 percent voter participation rate, they're dictatorships, you know, where it's like you have to vote because otherwise you'll be killed or put in prison. <laughs> So there's no reason, to, you know, the Swiss are famous for this in many of their elections, uh, you know, and they have one of the most, generally considered one of the most representative democracies in the world. A lot of the times they have terrible voter turnout, you know, so it's it, voter turnout and whatnot. But um, I think it should be easy for people to vote. And as with all other types of goods and services, it's like, you know, this idea that you have to go, you have to show ID, you have to only be there from like, you know, nine to five or whatever, one day, et cetera. Like every other part of our lives have gotten easier uh, for people who want to do something. And it would seem to me if voting is that important, it should get easier. The amount of voter fraud that uh, conservatives tend to talk a lot about is, is negligible. The type of voter fraud, it's not happening at the point of the ballot being inked or anything like that. It, it's really more the, the real large issues are these things about like ballot access and party access and and political funding of campaigns? You know, a lot of people want to get politics and want to get money out of politics, and they say we have to limit the amount that anybody can spend on a campaign. And of course, that rewards incumbents because they're already known, so they don't have to spend a lot of money in order to get name recognition or to get any kind of. Uh, you know, presence or visibility, um, you know, one of the best things that can happen, somebody like Eugene McCarthy, the, uh, the anti-war candidate in the, in the late 60s for the Democratic Party, he's basically the guy who knocked LBJ out from running again because of a strong early showing. His entire campaign was bankrolled by like a millionaire who was really devoted to the uh, cause. And I think people would be hard put to say that Eugene McCarthy somehow should not have been allowed to participate um, you know, even though we spent years after that saying, oh, no, that, you know, that kind of thing where one person can fund a campaign, that's a bad thing. You've got two children who are older than mine. What, what kind of society, if you had your crystal ball best mm -hmm. wish hat on, what kind of society would you like to see them reach your age? Wow. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because my, my kids are 21 and 13 and, uh, and I am 51. My father was 40 when I was born. And so I, I was born in 1963. He was born in 1923. My mother was born in 27. They grew up, and I think we talked about this a bit uh, in the previous podcast, they grew up in immigrant families, you know, during, during the Depression. My father fought in World War II, and they landed ultimately in a world that was wealthy beyond their wildest imaginations. I mean, these were people who went to bed hungry, or if not hungry, not sure that they wouldn't be hungry the next day. This does not exist in America anymore. It, was, it, it doesn't exist, you know, by the time they were my age. They, uh, you know, it's unbelievable, really. And in a weird way, I actually think that the difference between the world I grew up in and the world that I live in now is as vast. I mean, you know, clearly poverty, you know, was licked you know, before, and it's, which isn't to say people aren't poor, but the kind of systemic poverty and the slide into true deprivation does not exist anywhere in the in the developed world, and it's lessening everywhere in the in the uh, in in the poor world. Um, but when you think of the radical shifts in things like individualism and the acknowledgement that. 
you know, there are more than more than two ways to, to have sex, that there are more than two races, black and white, or that we're all individuals. When you look at the technological innovations and the ability of the world to integrate itself, in my lifetime, it's, it's unimaginable. I mean, the internet was kind of imagined and predicted by various people, but it, it's, you know, it's as big a shift as my parents growing up. And, it, it, you know, I guess my father would have been just a kid uh, my mother, not even, or just born, when Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic Ocean, you have you go from that to landing on the moon. In another way, to be honest, like going from a world, you know, with jet aircrafts, you know, jet travel across the country only available for rich people, to everybody being wealthy enough to fly, that's as big a transformation. Um, and so I, you know, I feel happy. I'm really happy that I grew up, that I was born when I was, and not when my parents were. To be quite honest, and they, I know, were really happy that they were not born when their parents were born. Who, you know, were born in poor parts of Italy and Ireland that had been awful for a thousand years or five hundred years. Um, and and I, I look at what my kids are going through. There are going to be massive challenges. Uh, you know, the government system here does not work, and it threatens to be the kind of thing that swallows the entire economy. If we, you know, we need fundamental reform of entitlement spending and the way the government acts. Uh, we need to get rid of the, the kind of war machine that is, you know, still at large. I mean, here we are. We elected Barack Obama because he was the anti-war candidate. He's bombed something like seven countries. We're still in Afghanistan, and as people are saying, oh, we're going to be there until past 2016. We're back in Iraq. We're talking about going into Syria. You know, I mean, this is not a perfect world by any stretch, but I feel confident that my kids and your kids are going to be in a world where they have more freedom to make decisions about things that are important to their lives. And I think that's mostly because of technology, and I think it's mostly because that old model that we inherited from the 20th century of the idea of planning and the best and the brightest and centralized control has given way to a decentralized model of cultural production, of living, and ultimately technology has enabled that. Um, you know, the Internet, the FCC can try and regulate the Internet, and, uh, you know, dictators can try to regulate the Internet or keep people from leaving. It's harder and harder to do that. It's harder and harder for central banks, you know, for one example of things that I know you're interested in. It's harder and harder for central banks to either, you know, deflate or inflate their currency, even when they want to, because power has dispersed from a few nodes in a network to many, many more points on the network. And, uh, you know, and I think that will continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly, my hope is that not only does the power disperse, but the rules, the regulations, yeah. the policy, it, it has to, there has to be a shift. Yeah. There has to be the reform that you talked about. Yeah, there will be ultimately because, you know, in the end, you know, I mean, I guess it's uh, the economist Herb Stein who would, was, you know, worked for the Nixon administration, so you got to hold that against him. But he's, you know, he's the guy who said some version of, you know, things that can't go on forever won't. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have, you know, we have entitlement spending, which is driving budgetary increases in, in the United States. We have an entitlement system that was predicated upon, in the, in the case of Social Security, you know, like 50 workers paying for the retirement of one worker, like chipping in and paying for that. Now it's down to three to one, and it just the math doesn't add up. Medicare is the reverse, where it was never a fully funded program. 
uh, taxes, uh, the tax revenue as well as co-payments and premium payment was only never covered, was never intended to cover, you know, more than about 40 or 50 percent of the bills. And, you, you know, it just can't go on because the, the amount of money that gets spent on it keeps growing so much that it swallows everything else. So these things will change. And, and you know, and this is part of the function of a, of a magazine like Reason and a policy, policy shop at the Reason Foundation is to, you know, be working for change incrementally all along the way, but also when big issues, you know, really hit the table to have worked out ideas to have thought through policies and plans and proposals so that when politicians and people in power get desperate and they're like, holy cow, we really do have to do something different, they're like, oh my God, look at this. Here is a plan to get the state of Illinois out of uh, pension-related debt, and we can work with this. Great. Well, Nick, anything else on Reason.com and Reason TV? Reason uh, you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, not, uh, you know, again, uh, Reason Magazine started in 1968, so we've had a, a good long run, and we're flourishing in the Internet age. Um, you're, and we're flourishing because one thing that the Internet has done is that it reduced the cost of distribution. I mean, this is, you know, sure. one of the things that was early on recognized as the power of, of, of the Internet and the World Wide Web being laid on top of that. And, you know, so we can get our word out, our videos, our print, our, you know, our ideas out to more and more people. That's part of it. And then the other thing, and I, and I think, you know, we live in a time where people, a lot of are like, oh, you know, there's like a real crisis of confidence or crisis in authority. And people are worried because, you know, you look at people like George Bush and you look at people like Barack Obama and you look at, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and you're like, you know, people are starting to realize these guys are, you know, charitably, they're not up to the fearsome task of really running all various aspects of our lives and, and the economy and choosing what's best. And what I feel good about is oh, that, I think to that point, no one's capable of it. Exactly. But yeah. they think but, they are. Yeah. Well, and, <laughs> you know, but, but we, you know, we live in an age where people are starting to recognize that and act on it. And instead of being dispirited and looking for a messiah or somebody who's going to fix all of our problems... I think people are starting to say, okay, you know what, we, you know, we're going to take control over the, the, the power that we have in our, in our in a, starting with a small sphere. We're tending our own gardens, as uh, Voltaire's Candide does at the end of that book, but we're also branching out. And it is amazing, you know, because we can communicate, because we can exchange, you know, whether it's through Bitcoin or through Federal Reserve currency or whatever, we can communicate with people all around the world instantaneously. We can create things like you know, the whole food system of certifying certain of its products, even at a place like Kroger, you know, so people now, I find this kind of stuff amazing. And it's these small things that will, you know, all add up to a real transformation. But in Kroger, you know, big, lumbering, gigantic, uh, you know, uh, food uh, supermarket chain, I think it's the single biggest pure supermarket chain in the, in the country. They have various products where you can, like, scan a barcode or a QR code, and it'll tell you where the produce came from and how it was made or the product mm -hmm. was made. People value that, and they want to feel connected. And these are the types of changes that's, like, unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, our, you know, our parents or grandparents grew up in a world where you would go with a list to a merchant, and he would, you know, you would meet him at the front counter, and he would go back in the back and pour stuff into bags and weigh them without you looking and stuff mm. like that. This is, you know, it's a radically different world. And in yeah. many, many ways, probably in most ways, it's a better world. And the question is, you know, do we have the confidence, uh, you know, in do we have the confidence in ourselves that we, you know, we can do a better job 
than you know big government or big business or big anything telling us no you you know monsters live over there don't even think about engaging you know with that type of knowledge uh, you know and I, and I think we're up to the task Great. well Nick thank you for joining us for the second interview of the show uh, thank you for turning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show please leave your comments and ratings on iTunes and Stitcher thank you for listening have a great day <laughs>